The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the show. Kieran Cuddy with you until seven o'clock this evening, and it gives me great pleasure uh, to welcome uh, to the Hard Shoulder now James O'Brien, the LBC presenter and the author of a new book, How They Broke Britain which is available uh, today in all good bookshops and bad bookshops as well. Let's not uh, leave them out <laughs> of the equation. Uh, James, it's great to talk to you. How are you? I'm grand, thank you, Kieran. Always a pleasure. Um, so I guess the, the premise of the book is that Britain is broken. In what way is it broken? Well, how long have you got? I, I, I should stress for, for, for the benefit of your listeners that it, it, it is about the whole of the United Kingdom. It's just that putting Britain in the title made for a pithier <laughs> uh, co- connection of words, you know, a bit of alliteration goes a long way. I mean, it, 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 it's not an exaggeration to say in every way, but what, what I look at chiefly is the ecosystem in which really bad things could happen, largely without consequence or, or accountability. So I, I'm very fortuitously, from my point of view, um, the appalling handling of the COVID-19 crisis by Boris Johnson's government is a, is a symptom of this sort of ecosystemic malaise that I try to unpick. That would be one example. Then obviously becoming the first population in the history of humanity to vote to impose economic sanctions on itself. How could that happen? How could people be so successfully persuaded to vote against their own interests? And, and then the consequences of that for our GDP and for our um, our economy in general. How could how could a country end up with Liz not only with Liz Truss becoming prime minister, but also with Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng then introducing an economic platform, an economic policy that was, I, I, I mean, beyond stupid, according to almost anybody qualified to comment on these things. So I, you can pick, and then you can look at the state of our of our NHS, or you can look at the state of schools. So austerity plus Brexit plus this curious triumvirate of interests, linked interests at the, on the on the right wing, the the very right wing of the Tory Party, the right wing newspapers in in the UK, and then the, um, the 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 lobby groups masquerading as think tanks that have come to really, really influence public discourse in, in ways that should never have been allowed in the first place. So there's there's a lot in it. It's it's a it's a it's a hefty tome, this one. So so when did when did the did the breaking start then with austerity, the Cameron government effectively in and around then? Or or do you go further back in time because of that right wing press influence? That's exactly right. I do go further back in time. I mean technically it begins with Rupert Murdoch's purchase of the Sun newspaper and his discovery that, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, his discovery that hate sells. And that discovery leads, I mean, on the other side of the Atlantic, it leads all the way to Fox News, uh, the idea that feeding people largely untrue prejudice and, and, and vitriol would be incredibly commercially effective. So so it begins really with with that. And that leads to things like Hillsborough and the Sun's reporting of Hillsborough, which showed essentially a, a, a very close relationships between power and the people who should be speaking truth to power or holding power accountable, whether it's the police or whether it's politicians. The, the way I read it and the way I write it is that that breakdown of role began there and it culminated in a way with some messages that came out in the Leveson inquiry, 
when Rebecca Brooks, or, or who of course runs Rupert Murdoch's operations in the UK, was sending messages to David Cameron saying, you know, I, I can't wait to work with you. Just think about that for a minute. The, the head of a media organization saying to a, a, a putative prime minister, I think, it, it, yeah, a putative prime minister at the time, it was a conference speech. I, I can't remember whether he was PM or whether he was about to become PM, saying, I can't wait to work with you. I'm so excited about everything we're going to do together. And I think that we've become a boiled frog. It's happened incrementally. Mm. So that when things like that emerged... You know, no one called the cops. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it, but it's just a symptom of a much, much, much broader malaise that I try to unpick as much as I can in 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 the book, in the new book. When did you, on a personal level, become conscious that you were a boiling frog? That's a great question. I look, I, it's a, it's a phone in thing, isn't it? You speak to people who are good people. And you realize that they have been successfully persuaded to do stupid things or, or to believe untrue things. And probably the best example uh, is, is, is the so-called think tanks, the lobby groups, which I used to sort of like everybody else in broadcasting. We'd book these people from, from you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs or the Taxpayers Alliance, and they, they were experts, right? That's what everybody thinks. They're in all our contacts books, and we get them on to talk about stuff. But I, I, I think it was George Monbiot in The Guardian just started asking questions about where their money came from. And the more you looked into it, the more absolutely ridiculous it is that very rich people can secretly fund organizations designed essentially to promote the interests of very rich people or big big tobacco or, or you know, big food companies that don't want a sugar tax because it might eat into their profits. And somehow over the course of 30 or 40 years... They've infiltrated every level of the media to, to the point where you rarely see a television discussion program that doesn't have a representative from one of these outfits on it. And, and you can rarely open a, 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 a newspaper of any political hue without seeing one of them writing a column. And they're supremely unqualified. You, you, it's as if they've invented it. It's like Trump University. It's as if they've invented a, an institution and membership of it bestows qualification to comment on the great issues of our time. So that was my personal revelation in, in, in the sort of boiled frog scenario. It was the, the realisation that even when I'm presenting Newsnight for the BBC, they're booking people from these outfits who won't tell us who pays their wages. And that, you know, that's as absurd as having a media mogul's um, representative telling a prime minister how much they're looking forward to working together. So it's really, really broken. And the boiled frog analogy, which I open... The book with actually uh, the boiled frog analogy is 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 kind of explaining that you're about to encounter some pretty serious and shocking things that you already know about, but because it's happened so slowly and so incrementally, we're, we're nowhere near as as shocked or as outraged as we really really should be. So, but before that realization hit you, would you say now that there was still kind of maybe um. A, a sense of discontent you had with the status quo? Well, with newspapers. So I grew up in a newspaper man's house. My, my dad um, was the well Midlands correspondent for the Daily Telegraph for most of my childhood. And I got into newspapers and it was family. So I would be 20 years ago, I'd be appearing on TV discussion programs, arguing with Alistair Campbell about press regulation. And I'd be the one saying, well, look, if you don't want 
your uh, uh, your peccadillos written about in the newspaper, then then keep your you know keep your pecker in your trousers. I, I was I was the defender in some ways of tabloid journalism. I remember sitting next to Max Mosley on Question Time, and he was obviously a, a, a passionate campaigner for press regis- legislation after the news of the world turned him over and 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 I, I very pompously told him that if he didn't want his sex life to be written about in newspapers perhaps he shouldn't lead such a um such a a, 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 a strange sex life and he, he very winningly turns me and says, well i'm not asking you to join in old boy which i thought was, was quite amusing at the time but it didn't puncture my pomposity and then when i got off newspapers and moved into broadcast and i, I started speaking daily to people who were parroting what they'd read in 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 the in the mail particularly or the telegraph or the sun especially on the issue of immigration i just began to understand the poison that was being poured into public discourse by by this mode of so-called journalism, the, the, the terrifying you about single mothers, terrifying you about refugees, terif- terrifying you about immigrants, and then, of course, terrifying you about Brussels and, and constantly persuading millions and millions of people to be frightened of things that they really shouldn't have been frightened of. And from that place of fear come acts of of silliness, acts of relative silliness, um, in, in, right up to and including referendums and elections. To, to what extent... Did having that apostrophe in your name give you a more finely tuned set of antenna for misdirected fears? That's a great question. I, I, I mean, I can't answer that, can I? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit road not taken. But I, I, it means I didn't suffer from that exceptionalism that has typified a lot of the really bad stuff that's happened in Britain. I, I was never going to think. That, for example, you know, we 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 would be better as again something that's emerged this week at the COVID inquiry. Boris Johnson apparently genuinely believed in his bones that he would deal with COVID or we would cope with COVID. We would sail through COVID because we were English or British and not Italian. It's a terrible quote from the former deputy head of the civil service saying he spent much of the first weeks laughing at Italy, laughing at the tragedy and the death unfolding in Italy, because he just thought. You know that could only happen to Johnny Foreigner. It couldn't happen to us. So I never, I was never going to be an insider in that sense. Um, but, but I guess you need to find a way to get outside of of this mess in order to properly describe it and analyze it, in order to see it. To be honest, Kieran, because as I say, it's it's sometimes as if your your your, your face is so close to the screen that you can make out the individual pixels, but you've got no idea what the big picture looks like. So when you and you're so well known now for, for, I guess, shining a light on exactly these types of issues and uh, and trying to, I guess, understand people's anger and their legitimate uh, anger or frustration with the system, if we'll call it that, but maybe directing it where it should be directed as opposed to where, you know, Paul Dacra or Rupert Murdoch or other people want to direct it. Mm. it to what extent, and this is kind of on the therapist's couch to a degree, I appreciate, but to what extent is that an attempt at kind of, you know, saving your own soul? That you look back at the arguments you did make on Question Time and with Max Mosley and others. Um, and I mean, there's yeah. an element of kind of self-redemption in all of it. There might be. I mean, I, let's not get too 
carried away with with my role on Fleet Street. I was one of the world's worst show business journalists, but I, <laughs> but, I, but, but, but I mean, I really was. It's no self deprecation there. I was absolutely shocking, but I was good at talking. So I ended up on on talk shows defending the industry when an awful lot of people in the industry would have, would have sort of thought, "My goodness me, what on earth is he doing?" <laughs> just, but I was good at talking. I, I've always been able to talk a good game. So it's not as if so I'm you, a to- you don't have a huge amount of damage inflicted that you need to seek redemption for. No, I, that's exactly it. There's not a lot to atone for. I mean, that that wouldn't be the apostrophe, would it? That would be the Catholicism kicking in. So I'd say someone like Alistair Campbell possibly has that, and and we're now on a very similar page mm. when it comes when it comes to to, to, to right wing media. But he, you know, albeit that he was on the Mirror and and Today newspaper, he was very very much part of the machine. And the the relationship between political journalists and 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 power has changed in twenty years. The prioritise and the BBC f- fell foul of this, or at least some BBC journalists did very much so. Prioritising access over, I'd go as far as to say integrity. In in the case of one or two of them, including the current political editor, prioritising access over integrity is a betrayal of, of of listeners and viewers, and and that has happened uh, with you know with the encouragement of people like. Dominic Cummings and and others, the, the 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 journalists have kind of lost a lot of their bite as a consequence of of a lot of the issues that I highlight in the book. Does it? Do you struggle with um, having to have a view now on on well any and all issue as it arises? You know, we different. we only have we only have so much kind of mental and emotional bandwidth. Yeah, I, I find it really liberating not to have to. I, I, the show, the radio show, has developed in such a way in the last few years that. I don't. I don't go on air and start something tubs every morning. If I feel very strongly about something, mm. I've got almost almost unique freedom to vent my spleen. But but you know, I, on, for example, with the conflict, the attacks on Gaza now, and the Hamas terror attack on Israel on October the seventh. You know, ten years ago, there, there would have been a lot more, um, a lot less balance from me. I'd have been criticizing in a way that I won't do now because I don't know. I don't I don't know. I refuse to pick a side in some scenarios, I, 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 particularly when it involves human deaths. I'm not going to prioritize the death of, a, of, of, of an Israeli child over a Palestinian child or, or the death of a Palestinian child over an Israeli child. I refuse to, to, to be told or that I should be sadder about one than about another. So it, it's, it's just nice that we've created a space on the show where we can subvert some of the traditions of commercial phone-in radio. And and I can ask the listener to educate me, or some days I can tell them that I'm, my vote's up for grabs. You know, if it's, a, if it's a conversation that genuinely has two sides, I'll say I haven't picked one. I don't have one. I don't know enough about this. And mm. you, can ring it, you can ring in and persuade me. So I, I partly through the genuine therapist's couch rather than the um, sort of metaphorical one you referred to a moment ago. I, I've 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 come to a place in life. This is what I wrote about in my last book, actually, how not to be wrong. Where I, I don't have my fists up all the time anymore, and I don't have any sense, really, of having to have a pungent opinion about bloody everything. I met Terry Wogan once. I'm not name dropping. Yeah, yeah. But, people always say that after the name drop. Go on. <laughs> yeah, they do. Of course they do. But it's important that it was Terry Wogan that said this because he was someone that I was enormously starstruck by. And I met him backstage on a on a television show we were both appearing on. And and he said to me, he said, Oh, you're the fellow with the pungent opinions. And I didn't like that. I thought I would be complimented, A, that he knew who I was, 
and B, that my reputation went before me. But I thought, I'm not sure I want to be the fellow with the pungent opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the fellow with the thoughtful opinions. And 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 I, I hope that in the intervening years, I've moved at least a couple of degrees from pungent to thoughtful. Well, was it was it exhausting to 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 have that opinion and and that kind of anger fueled opinion about so many things? Now, in hindsight, was it exhausting? No, it's exhausting when it's really sincere. Actually, I, I think when it's a tiny bit performative, it's it's a bit too easy. Okay, it, it comes off a bit pat. It's exhausting when it's the stuff that I'm angry about in the book is exhausting. The people that have sold us these these this succession of pups, the people that have broken our institutions and and sold off our birthrights and abolished our freedoms and 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 stolen some of our futures. That stuff. That stuff's exhausting because it's so unrelenting. But the you know have it have it having to have a strong opinion about a, an ultra low emission zone that's not that's not that's not exhausting. The kind of manufactured conflict that typifies so much broadcast media now, I, I, I think that's almost autopilot for the people doing it, and that's part of the reason why it's so unfulfilling. You you you. I've le- I've, I've reached this kind of level of notoriety that I guess what also happens to you is that when an issue does arise, there's maybe an expectation mm. that you will have an opinion and people maybe project their own kind of values uh, onto you. In other words, you kind of become a, a totem for different tribes and yeah. then you're always going to fail to satisfy some, if not all of them. And then yeah. there's a kind of a sense maybe of betrayal and James has let us down and he isn't who there I is. thought he was. Yeah, there is with that, which is which is very flattering in one sense, isn't it? Because... It means people have a sort of fellow feeling with you, but 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 good examples of that would be the Israel Palestine, where I think people who are much more closely allied with with either the plight of the Palestinian people or, or the or, or the state of Israel are disappointed that I'm not more closely allied with their side and more opposed to the other, and I I, I get quite a lot of criticism about um, my approach to the transgender conversation because. I don't side with either the the, the people who that deny that transgenderism is, is is even a thing, or the people who uh, refuse to accept the concerns of women about protecting spaces that would previously have been much more protected than than they might be in the future. I, I don't. I, the way I explain it, Kieran, is I'm not going to call anyone a liar. I believe you can be born into the wrong body, and I believe some women when they tell me that they are frightened about how accommodating trans women will compromise the, the 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 security of their safe spaces and i don't see how i can avoid calling one of those two people a liar if if i if i if i fall more heavily on one side or the other and that upsets both sides i get quite a lot of criticism from both of those camps for not being fully aligned with with them but you know it's a first world problem really isn't it uh, the book, as I say, is uh, available in all good bookshops now and bad. How optimistic are you despite broken Britain for its future? It varies. I'm just like you. I'm like everyone else. I have good days and bad mm. days. I mean, I mean, it can't. I, I, I've stopped saying it can't get any worse because that seems to jinx things. So it can't get any worse when, when you're under Boris Johnson and up pops Liz Truss. And you say, oh, it can't get any worse when Pretty Patel is Home Secretary and up pops Suella Braverman. And you think, well, it can't get any worse when you've got your head around what happened at, 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 at Downing Street during COVID with regard to the parties and then the inquiry comes along and you've got Boris Johnson asking advisors whether they can cure it by mm. 
shoving hair dryers up their nose. And you think, God, it, it, every time you think it can't get worse, it gets... It's so can I ask... The, I know I said it finally, but um, what's more dispiriting? That people believe the lies because of who is saying them mm. or that they know their lies, but they don't care because of who is saying them. Yeah, it's the second one. It's the second one. When Donald Trump was in London a few years ago and he picked a fight with, with, with the mayor of London before arriving, which was largely racist in its intent and its motivation, or at least Islamophobic. And, and a fella rang in, I'll never forget, I'll never forget this. And he was giving a speech, Donald Trump, in which he was describing the crowds outside the building he was giving a speech in that had come to see him. And there was a camera on the outside of the building and there were no crowds there. So, you know, a bit like his claims about his own inauguration. It was it was a lie in real time on live television in glorious Technicolor. So we did a phone-in on it. Like, how, how does he get away with this or, or what is happening here? I forget the precise question. And a chap rang in and he said, I know he's lying, but I love it because it upsets people like you and Sadiq Khan. And part of you is very amused by that. And part, part of you is very dispirited. And then a couple of years later, people like that uh, 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 have had their brains so successfully boiled that they're taking up arms and running to the Capitol on January the 6th, determined to overthrow a democratically elected government. So you, you, you've got to be careful. But it is definitely the people who start off knowing it's a lie and then perhaps move to really strange and sinister places. The book is How They Broke Britain. You can hear them on LBC Radio every weekday. James O'Brien, it has been an absolute pleasure. James, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.